Well, good morning, friends. We are grateful that you are hanging out with us. It is not the way we planned, but it is the way that God orchestrated it. And we are going to trust him in this season of our lives. Uh, If anyone is bummed about not being able to gather with everyone in our body this weekend, it's me. Uh, Matter of fact, uh, it's one of those things where I was looking forward and anticipating this so much. I think Carolyn uh, even uh, outlined it really well for us earlier when she was just sharing a little bit about what the Lord is teaching her in this season. Uh, Our our staff, our team has been planning and preparing for everybody to come back uh, to our campuses. And for that not to happen this weekend uh, could be a little bummer unless uh, we have a different perspective. And our perspective is, is that we're we're going to trust the Lord in his timing and his sovereignty in all things in our life, including uh, when it is that we're going to regather. Uh, we are looking forward to getting together again in a couple of weeks, uh, Lord willing. And uh, until then, we ask that you would continue to abide in God's word, continue to devote yourself to him and to his people, uh, continue to check on one another, care for one another, uh, carefully admonish and even correct one another at times when we see one another not loving others well. And so what a great example that the church can be, even in this season where things seem to be um, different for all of us than they've been in a very, very long time. And that's how I keep thinking about things. But as we dive in today in chapter seven of Hosea, I got a question for you. Have you ever cut in to like a piece of bread and you go to eat it and it's soggy? Uh, I, I did that actually a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I had somebody make some banana bread and it looks so good. I cut into it. I take a bite and the middle is still raw. And I don't know what you do with that. Like I, I, I spit it out. I'm like, oh, that's so disgusting. Uh, maybe for you, it's been a muffin or uh, something else. You're just like, that's not right. Maybe it was a casserole that you cut into and you take your first bite and it's still a little bit you know, runny. Uh, that is what this chapter is kind of alluded to, alluding to. It is alluding to a people who are half-baked. Uh, maybe a better way to say it is people who are half-hearted in their devotion. And so today we're going to walk through 16 verses, and then there's three uh, simple implications for our text today. And so if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn with me to Hosea chapter 7. Uh, We're going to begin in verse 1, looking at this half-baked, half-hearted people called Israel. Specifically, uh, Hosea the prophet, uh, who is ministering in the mid-700s to the early 700s, is ministering to Israelite kings who are not leading the people well. Uh, He's prophesying to the nation uh, of Israel, oftentimes called Ephraim. He's encouraging them to repent, to turn back to the Lord, to acknowledge their first love. And yet time and time and time again, it seems that him and the other prophets' words land on deaf ears. And so here it is in chapter 7. Hosea is encouraging the people of God to repent, to turn back. Just as he has encouraged his wife to be faithful, uh, he is also encouraging the people of God to be faithful. The challenge is, is they will not take heed to his instruction. Matter of fact, in verse one, it says, when I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed. 
What you see here in verse one is that Hosea is encouraging the people that God would really like to heal our land. God would love to forgive us of our sin problem. He would love to meet us where we are in the middle of our hostility towards him, in the middle of our infidelity towards him, in the middle of our pride and arrogance where God has revealed that even to us in chapter five, also again in chapter seven. He goes, God can forgive all of that. He he can meet us right where we are. If we'll simply humble ourselves, acknowledge our depravity, our sin, and we'll turn back to God, he would love to meet us there. And that's what Hosea is encouraging the nation to do. And in verse one, he says that the Lord is, would be quick and gracious in his loving kindness and his hesed and loyal love to the people and his steadfast love. He goes, I would forgive you if you would simply acknowledge what you've done and you would turn back. Friends, I don't know about you, but that's the most encouraging thing about our relationship with God. I even think about Psalm 51 and David and uh, he had a pretty big incident in his life where he uh, was... Um, in a sense, uh, caught up in a snare, a trap uh, with this woman named Bathsheba. Uh, He goes, he pursues her, allures her, brings her into the kingdom, lays with her. And the challenge is uh, he even goes to great levels to hide his sin, eventually uh, even killing her husband. And this is the, the Davidic king. This is David, the Lord's chosen one, the man after God's own heart who messes up in all these ways. But in Psalm 51, it's interesting. You see his prayer of repentance. You see him acknowledge his sin and you see him come back and you see him offer himself to the Lord. And then you see the Lord's forgiveness. See, that's what Hosea is encouraging the people of Israel to do. He's saying, just repent. But the problem is, is that before the people would repent and before God would forgive them, God sees Ephraim's sin. It says, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed and the deeds of Samaria, for they deal falsely. The thief breaks in, the bandits raid outside. Verse two says, but they don't even consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them. They are before my face. What Hosea is saying is God would love to forgive us. The problem is it doesn't matter where you turn. There is infidelity in the land. There is uh, sin. There is chasing after foreign idols. There is chasing after things that don't honor the Lord. And he goes, it doesn't matter where you go evil surrounds them. Everywhere you would go in the land, you see a sin problem, a wicked people. It reminds me of Proverbs chapter 19, verse 18. It just simply says this, where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint, but blessed is he who keeps the law. Uh, The writer of Proverbs there just reminds us that when there is no articulation of God's purposes and his promises, there's no one sharing God's divine plan for the nations, then what you're going to see is people are going to cast off restraint. They're not going to do uh, what's right in the eyes of the Lord because they're going to get uh, uh, sucked into their own trap and their own snare. And that's what you'll find here in this particular book. You see an entire nation that continues to delight in doing what's right in their own eyes. And friends, as long as we do what's right in our own eyes, we will never, ever be God's man or woman. 
Verse three goes on and says, it's by their evil uh, that even the king is made glad and the princes are, are made glad by their treachery. Uh, what you're t- you see here is this idea of a duplicity. It's a double-mindedness. Uh, in many ways, they are just a wicked people. And what the political leaders enjoy seeing is the people sin because as the people sin, it means that the nation could become more corrupt from the top down. And so if the people are doing it, why can't all the kings and the princes do it. And that's what you would see, a lack of leadership or prophetic vision in the land. And so because there is no leadership in the land of God's purposes, everyone casts off restraint. And friends, I don't know about you, but could you imagine an entire nation that cast off restraint? I mean, could you imagine an entire nation that wasn't following the Lord? Uh, Could you imagine what would be rampant in the land? Maybe, you know, marriage probably wouldn't be upheld as a sacred part of the institution of God's ways anymore. Uh, Perhaps maybe you would uh, see division in the land over political things. Perhaps maybe you would even see um, human rights um, activists in some ways spurning against one another in division. Perhaps maybe you would see the overthrow of cities in the land. Maybe you would see burning buildings. Maybe you would see things on the news that would be a challenge. Friends, could you imagine what it would look like to live in a nation like this? See, that's what happens when people cast off restraint. When you don't abide by the scriptures and God's purpose and plan for humanity, then you do what's right in your own eyes. And when we do what's right in our own eyes, things quickly spiral out of control. And listen, I know that you and I oftentimes don't think uh, about this nation Israel a whole lot if we're not careful, but we should. And the reason why is because they are an example to nations. God wants to use them to teach others about who he is and about why God really does matter for government, for life, for marriage, for institutions, uh, for leadership, for how we would deal with one another, even in the, the backgrounds of the various nations or colors that we come from. The reality is, is God wants to use his word to teach us. Verse four says uh, that they, meaning the nation, are all adulterers. Uh, They are like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough until it was leavened. Uh, What it's oftentimes referring to when you see uh, that the the oven has been heated, it would be like in the, the night, somebody could get a, a fire stoked and you could allow it to burn and it would be really hot. And then you could shut the doors and you could not tend to it for a while. And the next morning, if you ever remember, if you put a, a, a hot fire in the next morning, you could get your, your fire poker and you could stir it all up and you could begin to kind of start over again. And that's what it's talking about. In the days of Hosea, he goes, it would oftentimes be one of those things where you would, you would see a hot fire and then you would think, okay, it's fine. But then it would be stirred up again. And there was just this continuing stirring in a sense of provoking of sin among the nation. Verse five goes on and it talks about even their leadership and some of the things that you see as a result of their sin problem. It says on verse five, in verse five, on the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with mockers. It says that even the leadership's double-minded. They oftentimes pursue vanity and things that don't honor the Lord. 
Verse six says, uh, it, it was with their hearts like an oven that they approached their intrigue. All night, their anger smolders. In the morning, it blazes like a flaming fire. The idea is, is that it could smolder for a while and then eventually it can fire up. And that's what's happening even among the nation. Even their kings are struggling to see all the things that are happening. In their drunkenness, in their lack of sober-mindedness, in their duplicity, they don't even have a clear view of all the sin that's going on around them. Even kings are so trapped and ensnared in their sin problem, they don't even see vile and wicked people getting close to them, close to, them to overthrow their kingdoms. And that's what's happening in verses five through seven. Verse seven goes on and says, all of them are hot as an oven. Then they devour their rulers. All the kings have fallen and none of them calls upon me. What Hosea is speaking here is he goes, listen, your kingdom is in such ruins that you don't even see the wickedness around you. It is right there, not just among the kingdom, but it's in the palace. The palace guard is corrupt. Your princes are corrupt. Your cupbearers are corrupt. Everyone is corrupt. And in your lack of sober-mindedness, you are going to lose your life. And he's not just speaking of a spiritual loss, although that is certainly true, but he's also talking about physical loss. And all the kings that Hosea would witness in his tenure as a prophet to the north, he would see four of those kings murdered by someone else. King after king after king would be depleted at the hands of someone else usurping the throne. Now, friends, let's just put it in view for just a second. Let's say that your nation was in really bad trouble. And then you saw time and time and time come across news coverage that your leader had been killed. That the, the one that's leading the nation. And could you imagine in just a span of about 40 or 50 years that you would see it as you're prophesying to a nation that you would see king after king after king after king fall at the hands of wicked men. I don't know about you, but that would be difficult for the nation as a whole to gain traction and hope, wouldn't it? And that's what you have going on. A wicked, vile, detestable people, not just the, the land, but even their leaders are after one another. It continues on in verse eight and it says, Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Perhaps the better word there uh, beside peoples is nations. He mixes himself with the nations. Ephraim is a cake not turned. The idea of a cake, a cake not turned is one that you would put on that stoked fire. And as that fire is hot and is burning the next morning, uh, what you would do is you would leave it there. But listen, uh, a flapjack or a pancake's only good is when you see those bubbles begin to kind of pop up on one side and you flip it over just at the right time. But could you imagine not flipping over that pancake? And just letting that, that fire just, just sit on one side and just sits and it stays there and it's flaming and it's hot. And as it's sitting there, what happens? One side is burned and the other side is useless. Unless you uh, give your full devotion to God and everything, just a half-hearted, half-baked devotion is no good. It's useless. It's utterly useless. And that is what Hosea is saying. He goes, Ephraim is like a half-baked cake. They're like a piece of banana bread that you bite into and it's still raw and it's not done. It's not any good. And that's what he's talking about. Verse nine says, strangers devour his strength and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him and he knows it not. 
So the idea is, is as Ephraim has mixed itself with other nations in, uh, in all of its doings, it has gotten in bed literally with pagans. And they have mixed themselves with um, nations that in a sense were leavened. And so here it is, this country um, called Israel is to, to be unleavened. They are to be pure in all that they do. They have now mixed themselves with leavened bread, with this dough. It is now corrupt. It, it even says that it has all been sprinkled upon him. He knows it not. The idea is that they have given themselves over to harlotry and idolatry and everything is wicked in the land. Now, I don't know about you, but you may go, well, what does that really mean? So you might remember in the story of the judges and really chapter 13 through 16, you see a guy mentioned um, that's really important. Uh, and this guy is a guy who uh, was a Nazarite and he possessed lots of strength. Matter of fact, God promised him that if he never put a razor to his head, that he would be the strongest man that ever lived. And sure enough, um, he was strong. It didn't matter what people do, they could not bind him. Um, he, however, was a man that did not honor God with all of his devotion. Uh, matter of fact, you would see even just from those short brief chapters that he would find himself with with harlots, that he would find himself searching after other women. You would see that there was uh, some challenges even in his first marriage. Later on, you would see that he was enticed by this woman um, called Delilah. And, and this woman wanted to know what his strength was. And time after time and time uh, after again, she would ask him what the, the the trick was to his strength. And he would lie to her and uh, then he would say something else. And time and time again, the Philistine guards would come in and they would try to trap him and ensnare him. And yet he would break hold, uh, whether it was the ropes or uh, whether it was his hair being bound. Every time he would break out of that. But eventually, do you know what happened? He was at such a susceptible place that he finally gave in and he told this woman everything about him and even the truth that if his hair was to be cut, that he would lose all of his power. And sure enough, uh, she had servants come in, they cut his hair, the Philistine guards came in time and time and time again. Uh, this time though, guess what? He had no strength. And maybe one of the saddest things that you would see in the story of the judges, it says that God had departed from Samson. Now you might ask yourself, well, why did God depart from Samson? Why did Samson no longer have strength? And here's why. Because Samson was half-hearted in his devotion to God. And listen, friends, when we are half-hearted in our devotion to God, when we are like Samson, when we dabble just enough with foreign things, when we dabble just enough uh, with sin, then eventually God leaves us where we are. He hands us over to the depravity of our thinking. He gives us over to futile things, Romans 1, and he allows us in our half-baked nature to be useless. And friends, I'll tell you, that's not what we desire, is it? We don't want to be half-baked. We don't want to be useless. We don't, got, we don't want God to depart from this place. And we certainly don't want to be useless in our service to him. And so friends, that's what Hosea is telling the nation. Verse 10 says, the pride of Israel even testifies to his face. Yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor do they seek him for all of this. 
So what he's saying is he goes, they're, they're arrogant. Um, they have become proud and they have become egotistical in what they do. It's almost as if all of it is sitting before them and they don't care to, to spurn it or to reject it. They just spurn the Lord and they continue in the journey of doing what's right in their own eyes. He says that they're, are, they are like a dove. Verse 11 says, Ephraim is like a dove. They're sealing without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. Uh, when I think about a dove, I think about um, down in South Texas where I oftentimes go hunting and you will see a dove. And here's the deal. You'll see them moving from mesquite tree to mesquite tree and they fly. And oftentimes they'll fly at the very just inkling of movement. And the reason why is because they're silly. They move all the time and they're always scared and they're a little bit fearful of things and they're without sense. The idea here is that that's who the nation has become. They are flying from nation to nation. They're looking for hope somewhere, always fearful, but never fearful of the Lord. And so here it is, they're calling out to Egypt. They're going to Assyria. And you would see that to be true in the nation. Matter of fact, Jeremiah even warns uh, Israel to be careful about who it is they put their trust in. Uh, Jeremiah 17, five just says that this, thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. And what you would see is the nation of Israel continue to put their trust in people, in nations, in men, in kings, hoping that they would secure them, hoping that they would protect them, hoping that they would keep them. And yet the problem is, is the fierce anger of the Lord was against them. And friends, I'll tell you this, just as Paul would say to the church of Romans and uh, Romans chapter eight, verse 31, hey, what then shall we say to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? And friends, God was for the nation of Israel. The problem is, is the nation of Israel wasn't for their God. And so God left them where they were. And guess what? Things could now come against them. Their foreign policy was susceptible. Their kings were drunk with wine. Their people were full of dissipation. And they were a vulnerable city, willing and ready to be attacked. And God, their greatest strength, had departed the nation. What a sad state of affairs. Verse 12 says, and as they go, I, that's the Lord speaking, I will spread over them my net. I will bring them down like the birds of the heavens. I will discipline them according to the report made to the congregation. Verse 13 says, woe to them for they have strayed from me. Destruction of them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. So here's what the Lord's saying. He goes, the problem is with me. The Lord of heaven and earth is speaking to Ephraim, this nation, the, the north. And he's going, the problem is with me. They have lied against me. I will spread a net over them. They have cheated me, so I will discipline them. That's the idea. The problem is not that the nation itself is doing lots of things. The problem is the nation has become corrupt against their God. And he goes, I would redeem them. I would love to bring them back, but they speak lies against me. So their duplicity is in their face. It is in God's face and it has become a large disgrace. Y'all see what I just did there? We're gonna make a rhyme about that this week. Verse 14 says, they do not cry out to me from the heart. You can underline that. 
they do cry out. It says there, they well upon their beds. They, they, they cry out for grain and wine. They even, in the ESV says, they even gash themselves, which was a Canaanite practice of um, idolatry. Uh, that's, that's to the levels that the Canaanites would go. Is, uh, if they called out to the bells, they would even gash or cut themselves to show their loyalty. Here it is. It's even happening in the nation of Israel. They're gashing themselves. They rebel against God. So here it is. It's, it's not that they don't cry out. It's not that they don't um, pray to God. The problem is that their hearts are full of duplicity and they do not cry out for the right things. They are half-hearted. Their hearts are far from God. Friends, let me ask you a question. You ever cry out to God and you know that your heart's not right? You ever been in a place and perhaps maybe it's in this season that with everything going on in our nation and in your life that you continue to pray to God, but your prayers are empty and they feel void? Do you ever know that like the time that you're supposed to be spending in the word is not some mundane task that you're supposed to check off, but it's supposed to be a relationship that you and I have. But do you ever find yourself getting so entangled in other things, other affairs throughout the day that you in some ways find yourself not spending time with your steadfast love? Friends, that's this nation. And here's the deal. I would tell you, it did not happen over, overnight. It was a slow fade. The nation slowly began to creep away from God. And friends, if you and I are not careful, we will slowly creep away from our God. And listen, in a season where we oftentimes don't gather together in person like we're used to, we can, if not careful, say, well, if the church was gathering, then I would be better if the church was meeting more often, if we got on offline, because I don't like seeing a guy online. I don't like watching this on TV. I, it's not the same in my living room. I would just say, well, I know. I know that. But that's not an excuse for us not to read and study God's word. It's not an excuse in this season that the church not meeting corporately. It's not an excuse for us not to abide daily with the Lord. And here's what I would just tell you. The way oftentimes our drift begins is with an excuse. It usually happens with one excuse that we have in our life that we validate it in our mind enough, justify it. It creeps in. It leads us to a place of a slow fade. That's what happened with the nation. And here it is. As they continue to cry out to God, they're gashing themselves, cutting themselves, but they have rebelled against God. Verse 15 says, and although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. Verse 16 says, they return, but not upward. They are like a treacherous bow. Uh, they are like uh, a rifle that is not sighted in. Could you imagine taking a gun and pointing it, it has a scope on it, but it doesn't hit the target, doesn't even land on the paper? That's what a treacherous bow is. It doesn't matter that you are equipped with a bow. It doesn't matter that there's an adversary. The problem is if you have a bow in your hand that's not on target, you won't hurt the adversary. The reality is, is that they have a treacherous bow. They are not on target. Their path is not straight. They are corrupt. They are misguided. They are deceitful. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of insolence on their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. The reality is, is their hearts are far from the Lord. They have put their trust in men. And I will tell you in Psalm 
146, we are encouraged not to put our trust or our hope in mankind, but to put it in something that is lasting, something that is more sure, something that is more true. Matter of fact, if you got just a few moments, I would love to read Psalm 146 with you. If you got your Bible, feel free to turn there. If you're new to church, you're kind of wondering where Psalm is. If you just take the middle of your Bible, just open it to the very middle. If you're really good, you're going to land in the book of Psalms. It's the halfway point of your Bible, technically speaking. Um, once you get there, turn to Psalm 146. That's the chapters. And when you're there, I want to just read that, that chapter real quickly uh, to you before we wrap up our time together. It simply says this, Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Friends, is that true of you? Like as long as you live, as long as you take a breath, will you praise the Lord? Like as long as God continues to, to breathe into you and to give you life and, and breath, will you praise him? Will you live for him? Verse three says, then this, this is the warning. This is why I want you to pay attention. He says, put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. See, friends, that is the word that the nation of Israel needed. Hey, don't put your trust in princes, not in man. And listen, the kings of Israel, they went to Assyria. They sought help there. They even paid them money. They paid tribute to them. They said, hey, we'll give you money if you'll help us. Eventually, they decided, well, maybe Assyria is not the place to go. And so like a silly dove, they go down to the south and they ask for Egypt for help. They go, Egypt, will you help me? Hey, will you help me, Egypt? Eventually you realize that, oh, Assyria is going to find out about that and they're going to come against us. And it's just this battle back and forth. Do I go to the north to Assyria to ask for help or do I go to the south? And Assyria got them into a place where even the kings of Israel were paying payments to them almost by the month to be their foreign policy protection. Could you imagine paying somebody to be your ally? They don't want to be their ally because they like you. They want to be your ally because you're paying them to be their ally. And that's what the nation was doing. They were going back and forth, putting their tr trust in man. Now, let me ask you a question. If you were the nation of Israel, why would you pay a country to be your foreign protection policy when you have the God of the Bible who says, if you'll follow me, I'll always bless you, keep you, protect you, give you land, people, and blessing. I don't know about you, but there's not a better foreign policy than trusting in the Lord. Amen. Like, that's what he's saying. But he goes, but you're silly. You're corrupt. You're vile. You're double-minded. You're not even in your right mind. You keep going to Assyria and they're going to turn against you. Egypt, they don't care about you. I care about you. But you have gotten off target. And so how do we stay on target? Well, Psalm 146 tells us, he says in verse five, but blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. He's the Lord that sets the prisoners free. He's the one who opens the eyes of the blind. He's the one who lifts up those who are bowed down to him. The Lord loves the righteous. He's the Lord that watches over sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, 
but with the wicked, he brings to ruin. Friends, he is the one who supports those who are strongly watching after him. He's the one who looks to strongly support those that are devoted with all their heart. Not half-hearted devotion, but full devotion to him. Matter of fact, he's the one who accomplished all these things through the person and the work of Jesus. Jesus opened the eyes of blind, uh, Matthew 9, 27 through 29. Jesus raised those who were bowed down, Luke chapter 13, verse 11 through 13. Jesus loved the righteous, Matthew 13, 43, Matthew 25, 46. Jesus is the one who watches over the the strangers, Matthew chapter eight, verses five through 10. Jesus is the one who blesses the widow and the fatherless, the orphan, Luke 7, 12 through 15. Jesus is the one who turns upside down the way of the wicked. You see that in Matthew chapter 21, verse 12. Do you see how Jesus is the answer, the key to all this? Friends, let's lean into him. Verse 10 then says, the Lord will reign forever, your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. So friends, we can praise him. And you might be asking the question, well, how? Like, what does that look like? And I just wanna give you three quick things. One is I want you to know, friends, like wherever you're sitting right now, God is not interested in your half-hearted devotion. Uh, he tells it to the churches in Revelation this way, that he's going to spit out anything that's lukewarm. Like he's going, hey, get, get off the fence. You're either for me or you're against me. Which is it? Give me your heart and follow me daily. Friends, where are you? Are you half-hearted, half-baked? Are you tossing to and fro? Are you being easily confused by every wind of doctrine these days? Or are you trusting God as your provision and strength? Trust him. Number two, listen, if you have sought your hope in man, you've trusted man, then look, here's all you do. You seek forgiveness from God right now. You go, God, I'm sorry. I've been, I've been sidetracked. I've been putting my trust in man. I've been putting my trust in medical doctors. I've been putting my trust in political ideals. I've been putting my trust in movements. Listen, God, would you forgive me? Because in my half-hearted devotion, I have gotten off track. I have swerved. I've gotten off course and I need to confess that to you. And God, I beg for your repentance. Help me to trust in the Lord. And the third thing, I would just say this, repentance begins with me. Repentance begins with me. Meaning right where you sit, you can blame anyone you want for where you are right now spiritually but no one else can repent or bring you back into full devotion with God outside of you. Now listen, David, if you remember the Bathsheba incident, he was, he was approached by his friend who helped lead him to repentance because he didn't even recognize his need for it. And maybe that's where you're at. Maybe you don't recognize your need for it, but listen, there is no one else on the planet that can shepherd your soul but you. Let me say it one more time. There's no one else on the planet that is responsible for shepherding your soul but you. You can blame leaders. You can blame pastors. You can blame whoever. It doesn't matter. You and I are the ones who ultimately get to bring about repentance in our own lives by acknowledging that we've missed the mark. Friends, that is our goal. Will we trust him? trusting the Lord or trusting in mankind. Friends, I pray we are people who are fully devoted followers of Christ, trusting the Lord in all things and in all ways. 
Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for my friends who are about to lead us in song. Lord, I pray that as we sing, we would know that this is simply one part of our worship, that worship is not about just singing. It's not just about reading um, the word of God, but that worship is a lifestyle. It is people fully devoted to the Lord in all ways and all things. It is people who have subjected themselves to you. And so, Lord, we know that you are our master. You are our strength. You are our provision. God, you are the one who makes paths straight. Lord, we know that if you are for us, no, nothing else matters because it doesn't matter who rise, rises against us. Father, I pray that you would help us to know that, acknowledge that truth, and I pray that we would turn to you. For some of us in this moment, it means confession and repentance. It means that we are going to have to come before you with a contrite heart. And so, Lord, here we are. God, would you make sure that in our devotion to you, that we're not half-hearted and we're not trusting in man. God, may we trust in you, the one who meets all our needs. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.